0: Our guest speaker is Jeff Rittering. He's the uh, director of IHOP in uh, South County, I guess? Yeah, kind of South County. South County. Uh, he's a graduate of Covenant Seminary. Uh, well, Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, similar to Covenant Okay, yeah. Anyway, he's a smart guy. He's going to bring the word to us. Uh, let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jeff could be here today. We ask for your anointing upon him. We ask, Jesus, that uh, you, through your Spirit, would speak to us through him, um, so that we might uh, be further conformed to your image. We pray in your name, amen. So can you hear me okay? All right, well, I guess I'll just jump right into it. You know, know, sometimes you have these little things where you kind of have to introduce yourself and say all these warm things so they can kind of connect with you really, you know, just pretend we're friends. (laughs) Pretend. Pretend we trust each other. I like the word hospitality, uh, uh, David. That's really good because we've really messed up the word love. I mean, we talk about it and, you know, it's like, well, what does love mean really, you know? Toward the end, I'll actually talk about a different kind of definition of love. Um, but right now, we've really messed it up in our culture. I mean, it's just, just a mess. Uh, a friend of mine actually did a movie. It's on Netflix right now. Uh, and I don't necessarily suggest you watch it because it's really raw, rated R, a lot of F words, stuff like that. But... But um, it's called, It's a documentary called um, Liberated Sexual Revolution. Actually, you should watch it. You just have to make sure that you're careful when you watch it, because, uh, you know, it can be a little bit depressing. In the movie, uh, basically talk about the difference between the 60s, free love, and the 2010s, or wherever we are right now, free sex, basically what it, Gets into, and what's interesting about it is that a couple of the different people were talking about love, and this—I remember one girl. She's like, "Well, what is love?" And another person says, "I don't want love. I don't. I don't want love." I said, yeah, what is going on? And the thing is, we're much more swayed by the culture than we think. I mean you know, seriously, I mean, we used to be able to talk, for instance, about homosexuality. And now we have to be very careful to not have hate speech or something like that. I mean, how do we actually say the word sin in association with uh, sex outside of marriage? Right? We can't really even do that. And, um, and I think that there's a, there's a certain confusion that even the church is in, they think they have clarity But really, even we are swayed in a direction toward confusion in this culture. Because we're really battling powers and principalities. You know, our thought process is, is affected. Have you ever got to the point where it used to be able to speak freely about something, but what used to be unthinkable has become increasingly more and more thinkable? And maybe this slippery slope has gotten to the point where it's like, oh my goodness, what's going on? I don't suggest that you actually watch Fox News or CNN or anything like that. I mean, you'd just be depressed all the time. I mean, I don't even know where we get our news. I mean, it comes through. You know, if we're on social media, we get, you know, we can't avoid the news. And yet what we find, um, like, for instance, with the Parkland school shooting, um, there was an interesting article that came up afterwards. It was actually a rebuttal of an article. And then there was a third article. All three of them in the title had the word broken boys in them. The first article was written by a man, and he said, the problem with our society is masculinity. Actually, he said a lot of other words, but that was one that really stuck out to me, and it stuck out to the rebuttal. As a woman was writing, she says, that's ridiculous to say something like that. I mean, it was masculinity that caused the coach to take bullets in his back when he protected the kids. I mean, we can't just say masculinity is bad, but in our culture, we have. We're not even sure that fatherhood is a necessary thing in our culture. Um, I keep forgetting her name, Angelina Jolie. So she had a four-year-old boy, and in this article, the second article, it, it, it talked about broken boys, and, and she said, you know, it's the strangest thing, but I have this four-year-old boy, and when my husband, I guess Brad Pitt, was gone, he asked for his father. Where's my father? She says, never even occurred to me that a boy would need his father. We're, we're in a culture right now. The third article was interesting about the broken boys and specifically got into the idea of fatherlessness and how that changes our culture and that the last seven shooters didn't have fathers. The eighth shooter ago was the South Korean that um that shot up uh uh Virginia Tech he actually had a father but he was south korean so there might have been other reasons i'm not sure uh but uh um but in terms of america we see it we're we're kind of in a mess aren't we we got all these problems that are before us we don't even know the solutions and we come to a conference and we say well love is the solution let's Do it. And truthfully, we're not 100% sure that we know exactly what to do. I mean, how much influence does this church have in St. Louis? I mean, in our own communities, in our own churches, we even see the messes within the house. We have a hard time even affecting the issues in the house. And now we're supposed to be light and salt outside of the house? So, yes, we can get more and more discouraged as we talk about it, and I'm going to stop talking about it because even I'm starting to get a little discouraged. (laughs) And then you go to these conferences. I used to go to the Promise Keepers conferences. Probably don't even know what they are if you're younger. But I used to go to these conferences. I remember coming back from Chicago one time. My dad went with me, and I came back, and I was fired up. I had all kinds of things. I had listened to uh, Evie Hill, I think. And um, he said, husbands, you're responsible for the countenance of your wife. For some reason, I like the word countenance, and I I took that sentence, and I thought, yeah, i got to be a better husband. You know, the truth is, we are already significantly burdened. Somebody talked about, Laura talked about social media and stuff like that. We're significantly burdened. And then we throw all these good ideas on top of it, and we're more burdened. Now, I got to remember this, and I got to do this, and I got to be better at this, because really, I'm not doing that great at this. And then we experience burden, and then we experience failure. And that doesn't really encourage us to be salt and light in our own community, or in our house, or wherever we are with a friend. And so I think that the church's influence has become a little bit anemic. We've not really done a very good job. And we know that, and that's why we do conferences like this. But I tell you, if your focus is we're going to try harder, we're just going to fail harder. Yep. Because, yeah, I mean, really, I mean, we, how much failure can we handle <laughs> before we kind of like stop altogether? Now, I was on the phone one time with my father, and I said, I was complaining or something. I was 50, he was 80 on this phone call at the time. It was probably four or five years ago. I says, Dad, you know, man, if I just had some of the wisdom that I had now, back when I started parenting 26 years ago, I think I could have done it a lot better. I probably waxed eloquent and probably quoted... uh, Mark Twain, and said that youth is wasted on the young. And then uh, I, I, I said something else about, you know, as a pastor, I've really been in full-time ministry since 85. As a pastor uh, since 96, I was a psychologist before that. What do you do with this, uh, 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 you know, the, the I mean, some of my sermons really stunk, and I didn't even know it at the time. (laughs) 20 years later, i think I can't believe I actually said that. (laughs) Three years later, I can't believe I actually said that. You don't have to even look very far to see some of these mistakes, and I'm talking to my dad on the phone, and, you know, as a husband, dad, I mean, I just really hadn't, you know, I just haven't loved the way I needed to love. And I'm just, you know, I guess I was in a time of discouragement. It doesn't happen a lot, but I I was discouraged or something like that. And he said something very very profound. He said, um, shut up! (laughs) I mean, I paused for a second, and then I started mumbling, maybe some kind of an explanation. I mean, he's never said shut up to me in my whole life. (laughs) And then he responded, shut up! I really was going to shut up at this point. I mean, I don't know what else is going to be said, and I don't even know if he knew it, but he quoted 2 Corinthians 7.10, and he said, regret kills, but a spirit of repentance leads to life. Regret kills. I mean, seriously, the burden of all the things that we've messed up and all the relationships that we've messed up, we could be 15 and feel regret. And then we're like, what in the world? How do we actually change this thing? I mean, How, how do we do different? I mean, how do, we, how do we influence? How do we change the thing? Well, it starts, first of all, with the spirit of repentance. It always does. We cannot grow without a spirit of repentance. We cannot change without a spirit of repentance. We cannot mature without a spirit of repentance. I mean, God is a redeemer. Many times through defensiveness, especially husbands maybe with their wives, but maybe in a workplace, in a job, or whatever it is, we get a little bit defensive. We, well, that's not exactly what I meant. What I meant to say is, and there's this little bit of thread. We get really good at defensiveness. It's actually like self-redemption. We're, we're like making ourselves look better. And we, we're, we're we're not good at a spirit of repentance. But the Bible is pretty darn clear in many different ways. I mean, unless we just like fall on our face, poor in spirit, and we just say, God, I really am a total mess here. I mean, you know. we We have no possibility of change or transformation. So I start by saying the problem. We can hardly even define it. We can sit here. We can talk for hours about the problem. But the solution always starts with humility and in a spirit of repentance, which is a gift, which is a great gift. Um, as we're trying to build communities that are vibrant, communities that are healing, communities that have love in them and hospitality, it starts with humility and a spirit of repentance. And I know that's, you know, I'm just kind of throwing that out there. And I'm going to throw something else out there. This is something that I was in a meeting last night over at the Gateway House of Prayer. My wife was uh, teaching uh, that night, and she was teaching on Jericho, in a way, and I'd never actually heard it before. Um, and it reminded me I felt at that time I kind of zoned out on what she was saying. But a teaching that I had done that had an aspect of Jericho in it. And I felt like the Lord said that I should share this with you. So it's part of the lengthy 15-minute introduction, if you don't mind. Hopefully you can kind of figure out where this fits in. The truth is I'm going to probably be jumping around in a number of different ways, throwing some stuff out, and you might not 100% know exactly what I'm talking about. If that's okay. Um, even I'm trying to figure that out sometimes. Yeah. But um, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, very popular verses. They, they talk about, uh, uh, Paul is, is, is talking about how the influence that we have, if we were to access divine power and weapons that are spiritual, we could do something so much different than if we use our own wisdom, you know, our own mental acuity, our own ideas. We need to go higher because the fleshly ideas, this fleshly tools and weapons to the, to the war that's waging around us is not working very well. And so when we talk about change, and it starts with a spirit of repentance, this is also something that's foundational. We must understand that spiritual weapons are so incredibly important. Now, this is the passage that talks about stronghold. When I think about stronghold, I think about Jericho, because it's like the picture that we have of this wall. As a matter of fact, Jericho was the most famously fortified, maybe not the largest city, but the most famously fortified city in Canaan. And God says, go take the land. And and, uh, we're like, well, okay, but it's like a big fortress. I mean, it's a high and lofty fortress. And the, the passage here says that It's a metaphor, and it uses this, this military language to describe warfare that's of a spiritual nature. And it says that what is high and lofty, this stronghold that is erected, and I can just imagine these stones in this wall that is erected, it's made up of arguments and philosophies that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. So if you were to go to somebody, or maybe if you were to hear CNN, or if you were going to be having a conversation, and say you're going to try to be a light, and you tell them a little bit about Jesus, you know, sometimes it even sounds a little weird to us. Like, yeah, it does sound kind of weird, that whole, you know, God created, you know, the animals going two by two, and the whole thing of the gospel. And we sometimes we, in in this the lure and the sway of culture. Even we have a hard time believing it. Many people are falling away. Our own children. And God says through Paul, it's, it's like a stronghold. It's, it's like stones that are lies that are mortared together with agreement of the lies, agreement of the enemy. And this becomes a wall that separates us from the knowledge of God. And somebody has a stronghold in their head. Maybe it's our kid, maybe it's somebody on the street, maybe it's somebody we're trying to tell the gospel or somebody else. And we have this stronghold, this wall that's erected that separates them from the knowledge of God. And we say something of truth and it's like taking a paper airplane and knocks across the wall and it doesn't do anything. And they're like, you're nuts. No, that doesn't make any sense to me what you're saying. It makes no sense. We could take the mighty sword of truth and maybe knock one of the rocks down, but this stronghold is just not going to budge. It says, well, how do strongholds get destroyed? God says, by divine power. Well, all right. Okay, you know, I I need divine power. Now I've got to learn. How do I access divine power? Because it's not just about God doing the work. Because in Jericho, and this is what my wife talked about last night, in Joshua 5, he, he comes closer to Jericho. They're actually encamped on a hill next to Jericho, and everybody in Jericho has locked themselves indoors. And there's a separation on the other side of the wall. And they know that Israel's there, but what are they going to do about it? I mean, we're just going to stay here. Maybe we're not going to get some of the vegetables on the other side of the hill or something like that, but we're good. We're safe inside of this. And, 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 and Joshua walks up, and he sees this mighty soldier. And he says, are you for us or against us? He says, well, neither. Actually, I'm the captain of the hosts. Like, Joshua falls down on his face, and he says, you got, you got something for me? I mean, the word of the Lord, what's going on here? And he says, Uh, And I guess they have a conversation, but then the next passage, chapter 6, beginning of 6, it says, the Lord says, I have given Jericho into your hands. It's finished. It's yours. Go ahead and take it. Now, I can think about Joshua. Now, of course, he was a pretty brave dude. But to me, I'm thinking, yeah, that's really easy for you to say. (laughs) We still have this famously fortified city. And all the stones are up there. How is that going to happen? What's going to happen? How is that going to fall down? And um, somewhere along the line, the co-laboring relationship between divine power and marching Israelites had to take place in order for this wall to fall down. This separation this lofty arguments. We are a part of the wall falling down. It's not just divine power. It's people that, that march, that take the land, actually step in there and get the land. In this case, it was praise and worship, which is strange, that took the wall down. They, they have uh, actually historically found the, uh, what they believe is the city of Jericho, And what's strange about it is that in most sieges, the wall would have gone inside because you have people on the outside pushing the wall in the inside and that they were able to get into the wall and then they take it down. But in this case, the wall is actually gone outward, which is weird because the people on the inside wouldn't knock the wall down. But God did this amazing thing. It was divine power. So I just wanted to throw that out there because it's kind of important. We are salt and light we have the ability as the church to access divine power. These strongholds, these arguments that separate us from the knowledge of God, that separate us from love itself and even the gospel, can fall down. God is interested in them falling down. He actually said he's given it into our hands. When we go through scripture, we does not say hospitality and love, you know, is... is is a good idea, and someday I'm going to open up those doors for you to be able to walk into hospitality and love. Actually, he says, you can do it right now. Take it. It's my will. I mean, I, mean, I you, you've got to do it. Do it. And um, do it with divine power. I mean, John 17, I wish that you were all one, even as the Father and I are one. How, how is it that the church remains in this sickly place, the church, I'm not talking about this church. I'm talking about the church in St. Louis, the church in, uh, in, in, in America, maybe especially. I know a lot about the church in some other countries. I've traveled to a number of different countries. And, and uh, sometimes I feel like the church in St. Louis is the most sickly. The church in America, the most sickly. I mean, how, how do we do this? There's so much division so many walls. And so uh, I, I wanted to start by, by saying that really our battle is way more spiritual than, than physical, you know, than intellectual. It's a miracle when we're hospitable, when we love. It is. It's a miracle when we love our wife and our children, our husbands. I mean, it's Really a miracle for some of you women to love your husbands. <laughs> <laughs> Joshua, you gave me the you gave me the stink eye on that one. I'm just relating. His wife's not here to confirm You know, we, we're we're really kind of confused. I like what Laura said. She was kind of like uh, a little reckless. Because there are all kinds of books out there that say things like, you know, you have to have good boundaries. And what about that whole codependency thing? I mean, how close is too close? Maybe, maybe we just got to, you know, protect ourselves a little bit, a little bit of space. I mean, the truth is, Jesus only had 12 really good friends and three really good friends. Maybe we can just have three good friends and we're in good shape. The whole love thing <laughs> doesn't have to necessarily go beyond 12, does it? Certainly not 50. How do we do that? How do we actually do love? And I'm, I'm actually going to talk about that a little bit. I think, I've got, I think the Lord has given me something very uh, unique relating to, uh, to how we love. Um, uh, I'm going to do that, though, toward the end, just, you know, keeping you, you know, wetting your whistle a little bit. Um, how do we love recklessly? I mean, just kind of throw some of you know uh, my brother. Uh, after he gets saved, um, he was thirty-four when he gets saved, and he just gets transformed by the love of God. He just got to do. He's got to do everything. He has got no boundaries at all. He says yes. To everything, like making up for lost time. And he then becomes a missionary to Africa because I started a mission over in Africa, and he said he could just go right in and be the director of this whole project. And, and I mean, tens of thousands of people could save. I mean, it's just amazing. Just, just, but he just, he just said, in, in one of his sermons, he said, I know that it's dangerous out here. And it's, there's Muslims that want to kill me. But what do I have to be afraid of? I can love fully, and maybe recklessly, I don't think he used that word, but he said, I have no need for fear. I either live as Christ, or if worst case scenario, I live with Christ. And indeed, Al-Qaeda killed him. They shot him, and killed him. And, uh, and of course, that's another important and difficult part of my life. That was uh, two years ago. And uh, I mean, he just threw himself out there. I mean, it's just crazy stuff. Just threw himself out there. I don't think you can love too much when you're transformed by the love of God and you're a carrier of that love. The truth is. Nobody needs your love. Your love, your best love, is like filthy rags. It's not that good. You can try harder at loving with all of your might, and it'll still stink. The light and salt transforming love thing has nothing to do with what we have, but what we carry. Indeed, it's God's love is what they need. And God says, you might be a dull clay pot, but you'll be a vessel of my love. We actually can carry the love of God wherever we go. That is the love that changes spiritually. That's the love that that shifts realities. That's the divine power. Um, and, you know, I I honestly think that we don't even understand community too much. When we try to pursue the three friends or the 12 friends or something like that, we tend to go to Starbucks. You know, we're going to try to go ahead and have some relationship here. So we hand, you know, we'll sit down and we'll hang out and we'll talk about this and we'll really enjoy each other. We bond. But I honestly think that hanging out in Starbucks is just not cutting it anymore. It might have been a good idea initially. Maybe it would bear some fruit. But I don't think it bears that much fruit. I believe that you can truly bond in covenant-like relationships with people when you're in agreement, going in the same direction in ministry. I've had some close friends. Matter of fact, I used to have a a list of names. I put down 10 what I believed would be lifelong friendships. These are the people I'm really committed to. I couldn't come up with 12, but I did come up with 10. There's only two of them that right now are close to me. I thought for sure I would be, for the rest of my life, committed to these people. Things changed. They went to different states, went to different ministries, something like that. If I'm not... Working with them. And I could try to maintain those relationships as much as possible, but they just go further and further apart. The relationships that have really stuck over the years are relationships where I have been in the trenches. You know, the foxholes. The people that I knew that would take a bullet for me, or I'd take a bullet for them. And it isn't just that we're close friends, it's that we're doing the same thing together. We're laboring together. I don't care if it's cleaning toilets together. Like once a week, we're gonna clean toilets over Thursdays over at the Gateway House of Prayer. We just clean toilets and all this other kind of stuff. And I'm sitting next to Stevens, you know, this is great. We're cleaning toilets together. Something of a bond that takes place, even in cleaning toilets. One thing that I found that supersedes all other ventures that really connects with bonds is praying for uh, my children. So the first. Uh, So I had a 15-year-old that, out of the blue, I mean, out of the blue, we just had a big conference, we fasted for 30 days with Lou Engle, they were all sleeping, we had 150 people sleeping in our building, we had 300 people from different states, probably 17 different states. They all came, we had this great time, and my son, who's 15 years old, he was actually the worship leader of the Night Watch. So I mean, this guy, I don't even think I've ever really disciplined him, he was practically perfect in every way. And then, right after this, it was like I didn't know him anymore. My wife said it was like that cartoon character with the spirals in their eyes. He was filled with hate and even self-hatred, and he was suicidal. We're like, what the heck? Where did this come from? I had another son who uh, kind of around that time, he was a little older, three years older, um, was going to college and he was the president of the the frat house. Pretty cool guy, you know, captain of the football team, drugs, alcohol, lots of women. (laughs) I went over there and visited one time and it was X-rated. I couldn't believe it. I mean, there were, I won't tell you. I mean, it was bad, it was bad. That's about the time, probably, uh, maybe a couple years after that, that I called my dad and he told me to shut up. You know, what is going on? So what we did for my 15-year-old is I got 12 people, coincidentally, because of a dream that I had that created strategy for prayer for my son. These are people that were going to stand with me and pray for my son. And we... We did the night watches all through the night. We prayed together. And on the computer, we would communicate to one another the revelation of God, which helped us to know what we were to pray. And we had all kinds of prophetic stuff that took place. Like one word was, as quickly as it came upon him, it would be gone. And we we had that word. We'd go, okay, this is great. I can't wait. And we prayed, and I realized I didn't know how to pray. I'm a pastor of a church for 20 years. I don't know how to pray. I I didn't have a voice. I didn't know how to fight. I I was in a war. This isn't just a prayer. We're in a war together. I can't lose this fight. I lose my son. So, you know, I we just we prayed, and I'm looking at these people around me. I'm like, I love you guys. I can't believe you're praying for my son getting up at 2 o'clock in the morning and 3 o'clock in the morning and whatever. After nine weeks, my son completely was delivered. But here's the other thing that was interesting. There were four 14-year-olds. No, I'm sorry. Four 15-year-olds. He was 15. Four 15-year-olds in our community, they all got delivered within 24 hours. Like I mean, crazy stuff. We didn't know about it. It was hidden. They didn't even know about Jojo, my son. I mean, it was completely independent. But because I'm kind of the pastor, I'm you know I, I get this information. I get these phone calls. I'm addicted to pornography, and uh, and I and you know and you know I, I just had sex with my sister. I'm like what? You know, and then he comes forward between to to his. To his, to this mother and I, and you know his father, and we, we, we have to, to deal with this. And then another one, uh, you know, heroin, fifteen years old, and he comes clean. He said, "I don't want to do this anymore." It's like there was a, there was a power and a principality we were dealing with. We didn't know what we were doing. We were praying for one kid, and a demon left our community. And I, I say this because. We were in the trenches of warfare together, linking arms. I mean, so devoted to one another. And some of these people were people I would never be friends with. An old lady, some guy who's a little bit weird. <laughs> you know, another guy, he's he's, you know, just kind of quiet, you know, really don't to understand him. He's not really that cool. I wouldn't just like go out to Starbucks with him or anything. But no. We were a squadron. Awesome. We were we were a team. We would never let a man down. I mean, if this guy was struggling or anything like that, I mean, we'd be right there with him. So we've been doing that for seven and a half years now. We've got teams all over St. Louis. We've created teams in different ministries. We call them war rooms after that movie. And there's something of bonding of community of love that takes place there that's covenant-like that's way different than Starbucks. I would take a bullet for this guy. And I believe that that is something that our communities, it's not just, okay, you know what, we're going to be better at evangelism now. We're going to go ahead and tell strangers about Jesus. You know, and it's a great idea. It's a great commission, actually. But, Unless we're actually going the same direction together, that starts out of a place of desperation, that actually creates this a massive agreement, like we really agree. This is the oneness I think that Jesus was talking about in John 17. It's not so much that we would have, um, you know, closeness. But we would agree with God and who he says that he is. We would agree with others, too, about who God says that he is. We're agreeing with God about who he says that we are. We're just agreeing with one another about who God says that you are. This whole identity thing, and there's this bonding that takes place. And it's when we're in agreement, we're actually going the same direction together. Teams of people. Maybe home groups of people. Maybe, who knows, where you're just like, we're, we're a team. We have to go together. We can't leave a man down. And so, uh, I got a clock. It says 22 minutes, so I'm going to go a little faster here, I think. I'm sorry to just share your heart. <laughs> so, uh, Matthew uh, 7 kind of an interesting passage. I won't even read it. Matthew 7, 21 uh, through 23. It says uh, these guys would come up to Jesus and said, you know, hey, we've cast out demons in your name. We prophesied in your name. And he said, depart from me, I never knew you. What? Come on. God's not going to say that. Don't we hate that passage? It just seems weird. (laughs) The whole idea of judgment doesn't even work together in our culture. We don't even like the word judgment anymore, but God seems to like it. I guess we need to agree. Depart from me, I never knew you. What were these guys missing? I mean, literally, we're not casting demons out of people too much. What what are they doing wrong? Well, it's interesting because then the 1 Corinthians 13 passage says the same thing, doesn't it? If you had the faith to move mountains, if if you spoke in the tongues of angels, prophesied, you know, if you had words of knowledge that, that came true, if you had uh, all these things, healing, deliverance, but you didn't have love, then it would amount to nothing. I think that that is what correlates to that, uh, what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7. What they were missing was to be known by the Lord. Depart from me, I never knew you. They were missing an intimate relationship. They were missing the love. They hadn't received the love. So my oldest son, who, you know, went astray in a different way, it took a little longer to get him back, like four years of prayer. Uh, Well, my wife prayed for 10 years, but I only prayed for four. (laughs) Um, so, So in this case, I'm like, oh, no. What's going to happen? God, like sovereignty, he had like eight encounters. I mean, miraculous encounters from the Lord. He got to the point where he was completely committed to the Lord, but still he had like stuff that wasn't clean about him. He couldn't change his ways. So when he went to a party, he's still trying to figure out which girl he's going to sleep with that night. But he's a Christian. And then he goes to this conference, signs up as a volunteer because it's a new church. Long, long story, really. And, and he goes in there, and they call him up. And he goes up for prayer. And they lay hands on him. And he gets completely delivered from perversion. He says, Dad, and he never used this language before. He said, Dad, I got delivered. I said, what do you mean? What does that even mean? He said, Dad, demons left my body. Duh. You don't know, kind of. He said, really? <laughs> demons left? He says, yes, I'm, I'm experience am I'm freedom. I've never experienced, I don't even know what this, this is amazing. I'm like a new person, probably filled with the Spirit. I think sometimes we get filled with the Spirit and we, we you know, we call it deliverance and sometimes we get delivered and we call it filling with the Spirit. I think it kind of goes together. <laughs> and, and honestly, I can't even recognize him after that. Wow. I couldn't even recognize him. Wow. Just crazy stuff has happened in his life. He just, he found a freedom in worship that I think I never yet have been able to attain to. I mean, he's like, he's like uh, standing there one day, and the Lord speaks to him, and I love you. And he gets transformed with love. I mean, he just totally felt the love of his heavenly Father. I didn't even know he had father issues. <laughs> I guess we all have father issues. God divinely says now, I've got the father solution for all of you. This love, you can receive it. It's so hard to receive love from God. It takes a miracle to receive God's love. An absolute miracle. And and uh, and that's what what these guys were missing. Yeah, there's authority in his name, but we want to be known by the Lord. We want to know the Lord. We want to be in a relationship. We want to receive love from God. To know that you're fully known, fully loved by God is fullness of joy. An identity you know, is not in your community. Really not in what you do. It doesn't even matter if you have a great, you know, community team or something. Identity really is in Christ. It's, yeah, it sounds a little bit uh, cliche. Yeah, of course, identity is in Christ. But a lot of times we think that it comes from our friendships and whatever, and it really doesn't. The identity in Christ fuels everything that we do in community, It enables us to love in a different uh, way, uh, to walk out our faith in a different way. So some of us think that, well, we're, you know, uh, this is how it needs to work. All the people that have a lot of resources in life, they have, uh, you know, maybe they're the extroverts or maybe they're the cool ones. What they need to do is just be a little bit more generous with all the, the nerds out there and the, the weak people that maybe be just a little bit odd. And if they can just love those people, then, you know, we'll have a really healthy community. Truth is, we're all weak. We're all a mess. The people that think, oh, you know what? That's weird. I mean, they're not going to talk to me, and I'm going to not know where to sit, and I don't really want to go in there, and... And it's like, you know, and then, you know, they've got this almost like an inferiority complex. They don't understand that the reason why the people aren't talking to them is because they have an inferiority complex, too. They're not knowing who they are in Christ. You ever see this guy who really knows who he is in Christ? He's got an identity, but he's really kind of weird. He's not all that handsome. He doesn't play sports. He's not cool at all but he's got all kinds of confidence in God's love for him. You know, you've seen people like that. Well, I think my encouragement to us is that we need to just like face that fear, push it away and realize that everybody else is a mess. Everybody else is insecure. Everybody else is wounded. Everybody else has experienced some level of fatherlessness or, you know, unhealthiness. Everybody's experienced pain and abuse and neglect. That's part of who we are. That's the reason we don't trust in love anymore, and we don't even want it anymore. If that's love, then we don't even want it. All of us are weak. We're like sheep who've gone astray. We're all a complete mess, and we absolutely need to say, besides the spirit of repentance, we need to say, "Ah, I've got God. I carry God. And I have the ability to make a difference and to be a light. Doesn't matter where you are on the social strata. We all have to face our fears and just go out there and just do this thing. It doesn't have a lot to do with us. It's actually prideful to think that it has a lot to do with us. It really doesn't have a lot to do with us. It has a lot to do with the Lord. So in 1 John 4, this is, this is where it gets, this is kind of like the concluding part. This is where it gets a, a, a little dicey, and you really have to, uh, to think about this a different way. In 1 John 4, um, verse 7 through, it talks about God being the, the embodiment of love. He is love. But in there, it's a passage, a very famous love passage that describes how we can't really love God unless we love our brothers. And sisters, and so, you know, we're like, okay, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta love, you know, one another. You know, how do we do that? But you know, the word that is used for loving your brother there is agape love. So wait a minute, how could it be agape love? That's what God has. How how do how are we supposed to do agape love with our brothers? Isn't that Philadelphia love? You know, that's not agape love. I think maybe this is a miss or a misinterpretation because we know what agape love is and we know what brotherly love it is and it's different. And John is saying, no. No, this is how we love. We love with agape love. And I think what this means is God is interested in helping us to see and feel and think the way he thinks and feels about another person. Like, God, I don't want my thoughts. I don't want my thoughts. I want your thoughts. What do you think about Jane? What do you think about John? I mean, I need to know. I would just meditate. God, I need to know. What are your feelings for this person? I must know because... Because my love is not what they need. They need your love. So you, you ask. Just ask. Maybe it's meditation. Maybe, maybe it comes directly from the Bible. Because there's truths most of the time. That's the way it is. But maybe there's like almost revelatory kind of thing. Could happen a dream, a vision. Could happen just a word of the Lord or something like that. Where you're like, oh God, you love that person that much? How is, that's that's amazing. I had this guy that, I guess I married uh, a young couple, and um, uh, he he just had this whole download of what, I mean, this girl didn't like him yet, but he had this whole download of who she was in Christ. God shared it. He's a friend of God. And he has this whole download, and he decided, I'm going to walk in agreement with God on what he thinks and feels about Sarah. And he was able to get the girl. <laughs> he did. I mean, she felt amazing because she was being loved with the love of God that he was carrying. And I, I think that is how a community really is transformed, not by our love and not by our efforts, but by the revelation of what God thinks and feels. If you get that revelation, I think you have to ask for it. But if you get that revelation, then have grace to walk into agreement with that revelation. I mean, I carry something powerful, something that is transforming. Now, you don't have to say, thus saith the Lord, this is what God thinks of you. We're not talking about a prophetic word here. We're talking about you walking out agreement with what God thinks and feels about that person, I'm not going to do that one. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's just there's 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 something way more spiritual when it comes to when it comes to to love and hospitality, when it comes to shifting realities on the earth, when it comes to changing. Atmospheres. when it comes to changing the atmosphere in our home, it's a miracle. When it comes to bonding and connecting and being in covenant-like relationships, when it comes to prayer ministry people, you know, side by side, there's so many miracles that we need in our weak place. And God is saying, I want you to have it. It's totally my will. Take the land. I've given it to you. See what I've given it to you? I've given it to you. Just go ahead and take it. That's what I want for you. There's no reason for you to wait. I'm going to give you what you need to be able to carry me into the situation. Uh, I was over at uh, Susan now in, uh, a few years ago over in, in L.A. So we filled the L.A. Coliseum. It was kind of cool. Um, And you you probably do know about uh, Jonathan, uh, Tremaine Thomas. Um, But he and I were on the stage together because it was right after the Ferguson response, and somehow we did this one segment of the thing. So we're we're in front of 70,000 people or something like that. So it's kind of an interesting thing. I've been in stadiums before, but in this particular case, I'd never seen anything like this before. There was something that I would call a baptism of love. Well, actually, that's what Jonathan called it. I just came up with the word because he did. But it's true. Something happened. It was was Holy Spirit energized baptism of love. I mean, our hearts were full for one another. I'm down there. It's raining. I'm walking around. I'm just like, I love this guy. We don't even know how to explain it. We can't even put it into words. I'm totally loved. I don't even know these people. I felt love. The power of God broke in and changed what was happening inside of us. There was a transforming thing, and it happened like simultaneously like a revival-type thing. I was sitting next to Brandon, and somehow we figured out that we knew each other, uh, and then um, Brandon's brother-in-law came to the Great Way House of Prayer last night and gave a testimony of what happened this week. He and uh, his friend had won some sort of a lottery or something like that, and we're able to meet the president in Florida. They go down there, and they actually have a conversation with the president. What are you going to say to the president if you had a chance? <laughs> you know what they said? He said, revival is coming. That's the word that they had from the Lord. You know, how many times have we heard that? It's like, kind of like, OK, revival's coming. Revival's coming. And President Trump looked him right in the eye. By the way, these guys are losers. Seriously, they're not cool at all. I don't even know why. I mean, you should have sent the cool ones. we got some cool people over there at the house of prayer. You should send the cool ones. Maybe they would have come up with something better to say. God, why did you pick these guys? I mean, they're, they're weird, lanky. I mean, Paul doesn't even have any body fat. He's just this tall, skinny guy. There were handsome people, whatever, that could have done it. But instead, they have the word of the Lord. They go to Trump. Revival's coming. You know what Trump says to them? When? Seriously, when? We need it. Like maybe in my first term. (laughs) When is it coming? How does the church play that role? And God says, you see it. I've given Jericho into your hands. You see it. You see revival. You think God wants revival? Don't you just hate that maybe he would want us to be a part of that whole ushering in revival thing? God, do it. Do it for President Trump. He needs help. (laughs) And God's saying, you guys, you have no idea what the ecclesia could do. Matthew 16, Matthew 18. I mean, you're like a governing body, a ruling authority. If the church really knew what the church was capable of doing, by the way, Trump said that too, by the way. He did it to another friend of mine. He said that. Said, so you guys, the, Trump, the church doesn't even know what they have the, the ability to do. If the church knew that their hospitality, that the, the, the being vessels of God's love could transform a community, could transform a city, that their prayers could shift angels and demons and realities on the earth. If the church really got that, that potentially they could shut the gates of hell. (laughs) That they could potentially, you know, bind on earth and it would be bound in heaven or loose on earth what could be loose in heaven. We totally don't get it. And so a lot of times when we think in the natural and we create organizations that are a little bit slicker than the last one, and God says, you guys are losers. You're a mess. You're weak, and I can use you. And people are going to see me, and they're going to glorify their Father in heaven because they're going to say, there ain't no way that dull clay pot did that. There's no way. that's, That's what we have the ability to do. We have the ability to access the divine power of God that knocks down walls of Jericho. This isn't just about loving hospitality and being a better, more healthy church. This is about life, like vibrant, healing all the past wounds of fatherlessness, all the, the, the messes of abuse and neglect. All the fears and everything else completely changed and shifted and transformed by the divine power of God. Now, obviously, we didn't talk about, so how do we co-labor with the Lord in this? You have some ideas. I'm David has some ideas. Um, God is interested in communicating those ideas with you. And maybe it's a little different in every community. But if we don't access this divine power, if we don't access what God is thinking and feeling, if we don't carry his love and all people have is our love, we're in a mess. And uh, so I know I repeated it a number of times, and uh, and yet I, I I really just have to, have to say today. By the way, if you want to do a war room in this community, my wife and I will come over here and we can help you uh, start one, where you can experience, you know, that in that place of desperation, maybe when you're losing your sons and daughters, and and think that maybe we're just gonna. Well, can you pray for my son? He's doing this, and he's whatever he's on. Instead, you could be a, a team of a war room that goes into those places and shifts angels and demons. If you want to do that, let us know. Tammy and I will, will come back and do that. And you'll experience a bonding and community maybe you've never experienced. And you'll realize the power of God to change lives and destinies. Um, and I, I believe that, uh, that this is a church that shares a lot of the same DNA of the church that I'm involved in. Same kind of people. I I can feel it. I can feel you guys are like just like us. And and uh, and I and I and I just think that that uh, that you can do anything. Not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit. You can do anything by the Spirit of God. And it's it starts in this house. Maybe as you're hospitable to one another, it starts in this house. But God is wanting to explode this place, like a new reality of, of influence in this community as you carry as vessels the love and power of God. So let's just close in prayer real quick. You want me to also pray blessing over the food? Or do you got somebody else to do that? All right. God, we, we want to be convicted of our sin, of our weakness. We don't want to hide it. We don't want to be defensive about it. We don't want to convince other people that we're better than we really are. We don't want the Facebook facade. Instead, God, we we want to have a spirit of repentance. We want to be broken. We want our hearts purified before you and trusted to be able to go up your, your holy mountain. God, we ask, O Lord, that this would be a community in a time where divine power would be released to be able to shift realities in St. Peter's, in this church. God, we want a freedom to love you and to be loved by you. Grace, O Lord, to agree with you, to walk out agreement with you. God, we want to to love like we've never loved before as we're transformed by you and a new identity to be able to walk out the kind of love that heals and redeems. And God, we want to love you. We want to receive your love. And we want to love one another with your love. Thank you for the opportunity, God, to to even be together here and to hear your word and to, to want more of you. Thank you for, for hunger. And also thank you, God, for uh, this food and, and the hospitality in this place. We ask that you would, you would bless this place and, uh, and bless these, these, uh, these hands of people that are, that are running together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank mm-hmm.